Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss a new intercontinental infrastructure project and a potential breakthrough in the Caucasus. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Very well, Ethan. Um, I have a burning question for you, and that's how you're dealing with your newfound celebrity. We uh, chatted last week about <laughs> your Pete Buttigieg tweet, but it's bl- it blew up over the weekend, and you I got know. retweeted and covered in what Politico? Yeah, it only got worse from from when we last spoke. <laughs> it was in Politico. It was in the Hill. I'm being recognized all over town. There's a line of people outside my front door, John. So, I mean, we've, we've got we've to keep this quick. I can only hold them off for so long. Yeah, you've become known as the guy who Chipotle shamed the transport secretary. <laughs> Much to my chagrin. So, John, enough about my fame and my celebrity, although I could talk about it as you well know all day long. Uh, so the, mu- the much-anticipated G20 summit has ended to, to take a page out of T.S. Eliot's playbook. There were some banks but mostly whispers. Uh, we, we did a preview of the summit last week. Uh, so I think let's go back and, and test some of your predictions. How does that sound? Well, there's never a need to test my predictions after I've made them because they're always correct, as you well know, Ethan. But um, you're the boss. You're in charge. <laughs> John, you may be in charge, you know, outside of uh, outside of this little air, this little audio fiefdom of mine. But as soon as you come in here, you lose all jurisdiction. So we're going to do the predictions. Fair enough. Uh, let's start with number one. You said that India would use its moment in the spotlight to, quote, make a statement about its global intentions. Did that prediction come true? Uh, yeah, I think I think it did. I think it's fair to say it did. Um, Indian diplomacy, at least you know rhetorically, is kind of all about finding common ground. Um, you know, just a, a quick history lesson: India was one of the three founding members of the non-aligned movement, um, along with Egypt and, and Yugoslavia, back in the nineteen fifties and sixties. Um, it was kind of designed to chart that middle path between the Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Union, um, and the Western Bloc, you know, the US and, and the West. Um, I think it's you know it's different circumstances today, of course, but there's a similar kind of driving motivation in India today, not to take sides just for the sake of taking a side, right? Um, and you know, I think last week I, I expressed some skepticism um, about what the G20 is able to achieve, um, and, and I am still skeptical. But I think India showed that. By virtue of its kind of non-aligned, I've got to be careful using that word, but you know, its non-kind of side-picking foreign policy, it's probably more capable of leading an ideologically diverse cohort of countries like the G20 than maybe any other country right now. Um, you know, put more simply, an idea that is proposed or coming from an Indian-led summit is probably going to get a fairer hearing. Uh, and more good faith consideration from countries than it might coming from, you know, the US or China, for example. Um, again, I don't think that this summit was necessarily like a, a huge roaring success, um, but it means that I think India did a pretty good job of stewarding all the, you know, competing interests um, given given the circumstances. And maybe that's a low bar, but you know, saying that it wasn't a complete failure, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that, and that's really all I can say for it. <laughs> well, what, what, what makes you say that uh, you know that India was was well positioned to lead this group? Well, I mean, I think take for example one of the big outcomes of any G twenty is this leaders statement that the idea that all the leaders agree to a, a joint statement that they put out, you know, a joint statement of 
policies or intentions for the coming, for the future, really. Um, you know, they're absolute nightmares to get any kind of agreement on, as I can, as a, you know, most people could imagine. But India is actually able to get everyone to agree to a, to a statement on the first day of the summit. Um, it's pretty noteworthy because countries normally try to haggle back and forth about the language and, and, and what goes in and what comes out um, right up until the end of the summit normally. Um, and not only that, but this year's declaration was unanimous, and it included Russia and China's backing, which I, you know, I, I certainly didn't have that on my bingo card. Um, you know, the language was perhaps not what everyone would be best pleased with. I think it said, "quote All states must refrain from the threat or use of force to seek territorial acquisition against the territorial integrity and sovereignty or political independence of any state." That's a bit of a mouthful, but kind of says Very a lot. Precise. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I think that might not be as strong as some sides would like to as a denouncement of Russia's invasion, um, but it was kind of vague enough to get Russia and China to sign off on it. Um, and I think that ultimately is a win for Prime Minister Modi and for India and their diplomacy. Um, I think even German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said that he said I think he said something like a it, re it represented a success of Indian diplomacy that many didn't think uh, would be possible beforehand so um you know that that's that's not nothing I, you know I'm, I'm loath to quote Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov but he also said that it was a step in the right direction that he didn't expect so you know do with that what what you will um but I, I guess the bigger question people generally might ask after these kinds of compromises is whether the comp whether what's required to get that compromise um or get that consensus kind of outweighs the benefit of the consensus itself. Um, but for now, I think I think most countries are viewing the summit as fairly constructive. Wow. Okay, so so good on India for, for hosting a, a strong summit. Let's move to prediction number two, that the participants might ink some deals on small stuff, but that not a lot of the, you know, the big stuff would get done. How did that prediction turn out? Mm. Well, uh, in, the, in the spirit of... Uh, openness and honesty, Ethan. I think I got this one probably 80% wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I say that because I think there was some encouraging stuff in the leader's statement, including an agreement to pursue and encourage efforts to triple renewable energy capacity globally um, through existing targets and policies. Of course, that's not binding, so I don't put that in the big win category, but it, it's not nothing either. But the reason I say I, I got it 80% wrong is I think the big thing that everyone should be paying attention to uh, from, from this G20 is the decision to add the African Union as a full member of the right. G20 going sort of, forward. Sort of the same way that the EU is a member it, of the G20. Exactly right. It means they get a seat at the table every every summit um, and at all the various meetings that fall under the G20 as well. So they're going to be part of the conversation going forward, which is, which is huge. Um, it, it was a priority for India going into the summit. So I don't think you could say it was a total support surprise that it, that it happened. But the simple fact that Africa, or at least a, you know, a strong representative for African interests, um, will have that seat at the table, as I said, that, that's, it's just a big deal. And it's a big win for India again, because it was a priority for them. Um, now, there were a couple other things, I think, that we could argue about how important they are. Um, but there was no doubt, I think, that they were designed to at least capture the headlines and to appear important. Um, biggest one being, of course, uh, the announcement of a massive multinational infrastructure project that will span three regions across across Eurasia. Um, the initiative to build a, this economic corridor, as I think they're calling it, uh, was led by the US and President Biden. And, and you know, I think it is fairly ambitious, if I'm being fair to it. Uh, we don't have any of the details, or very few of the details. 
Um, and it will take years to build and, and all of that. But the general idea is that it will connect, this economic corridor will connect India to the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, and then finally onto Europe by, you know, through a network of rail and, and shipping lanes. Um, one Indian official called it a game changer uh, and said it would cut shipment times between India and Europe by up to 40%. So, you know, sounds great. Uh, my, my take is it'll be nice if it happens. It'd be great if it happens, but there's just sort of too many ifs, whens, and buts for me to get too excited about it now. Um, and if I'm, again, being honest, it strikes me as an announcement kind of designed to capture the headlines and push back against the claims, including mine on our last show, that the the G twenty is kind of losing relevance. Um, but let's see if it happens. It would it would be yeah. amazing. Well, well, John. I mean, you said the U.S. was leading this effort, and you know, I'm I'm looking at my map here of Eurasia, specifically the route you you mentioned there from India to Europe. And I'm do- let me double check, but yeah, no, I'm not seeing the U.S. <laughs> on there. Uh, my, my map, I will admit, my map is outdated. It does have the Yugoslavia on there. Uh, Africa and South America are conjoined. But, but, <laughs> but John, why, I mean, come on. Why would the U.S. be leading an effort to build infrastructure thousands of miles away from home? I think we need to stretch company funds to to buy you an updated globe there, there Ethan. But um, yeah, no, it's a good... Oh, they, there's been an update. <laughs> Just a couple. Yeah, exactly. Um but no, I think it's a very fair question. Um, but but it's got, I think, a fairly clear, or at least maybe two clearish answers. Um, first, being you know, China has for a long time. A lot, a lot of listeners might have heard the words I was saying before about the, the the Eurasian corridor and immediately thought of the Belt and Road Initiative because China's been using that Belt and Road Initiative to win favor with countries around the world for for quite a while now, for the best part of a decade, by sort of saying, "Hey, we'll come and build." build stuff in your country um, if you kind of, you know, play nicely with us. Um, and I think it's fair to say that this project that they announced, um, which they're calling the Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment, I mean, again, just terrible names they give this stuff, but it's kind of a response to China's Belt and Road, right? I mean, it's, that seems fairly obvious to me. Um, India was a pretty easy sell on something like this. They've not been invited to the Belt and Road. Um, they don't get along the best with China, you know, I think it's fair to say. Um, but getting the other countries on board, you know, particularly Saudi Arabia, that's a massive diplomatic win for the US um, since the the kingdom, the, the Saudis have been getting, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say closer to China in, in recent years. So th- that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is um, by including Israel in this network, in this initiative, I suspect the US is kind of trying to bring Saudi Arabia and Israel closer to normalization. Um, there were other routes, of course, that this could go along. It could go through Egypt, for example, um, on its way to Europe. But the fact that it's going through Israel and that they agreed that it would go through Israel is a sign, I think, that the US wants Israel at the table. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it was big news. Well, that brings us to prediction number three, uh, that Xi Jinping's decision to skip the G20 would prove to be a mistake, at least for him. Did, did I say did I say that quite like that? Or uh, no, actually, you know what? You didn't. But I think I think I predicted that. I don't know <laughs> if I even I don't I know if it was, it was on the airwaves, but I but I said maybe I said it to you offline. Yeah, I'm, I, I try to be more measured in these things. <laughs> but I think I think whoever made the prediction, and I think it, I think the prediction was right. I I think she has made a mistake. Um, first of all, I. I think she, you know, I, I think I said last time that she was mo- motivated by kind of not wanting to play second fiddle to Modi, uh, to Modi and India on on the world stage, and that's why one of the reasons he didn't go. Clearly, 
that didn't work, um, given how successful I think we all think India was at hosting this. Um, and I also think he kind of wanted to devalue the G20's significance, as I mentioned. Um, and I wouldn't say, you know, I really wouldn't say that worked either, since the summit proved to be pretty useful forum for countries to build, you know, new partnerships um, like this economic corridor, even if it doesn't happen, the idea that it's been agreed upon is a win. Um, you know, I think if you were going to design outcomes to at least show that the G20 wants to stay the top dog of economic meetings, global economic forums, then including Africa, the uh, the African Union at, at the table, and then building infrastructure in the Middle East, those two things would be exactly how you'd go about that, right? Um, and of course, without, Sh without Xi present, I think China's representatives at the, con at the conference, the diplomats, they'd have found it a lot harder to get in the room and, and to contribute much, both constructively and destructively, which is also part of being at these summits, right? Um, you know, it's much harder to get in the room for discussions uh, and, and to drive an agenda if you're not sure that you've got the political backing to, to kind of be flexible and make decisions. Um, and I think that showed because according to a report I, I read in the FT, um, China apparently unsuccessfully tried to delete a reference to America's presidency of the G20 from, from this year's declaration. Um, and presumably that's an effort to kind of prevent the US from hosting the G20 when it's, uh, when it's the US's turn in 2026. Um, that's, I think, evidence that China really kind of wants to undermine the G20, but it didn't work. Um, so, you know, overall, the message that I think some countries might take away from the G20 is that it's easier to make things happen when China isn't in the room, or at least not empowered and and, and sort of involved. Um, I think, if I'm being honest, Ethan, I think most countries already know that from dealing with the Chinese, but it's certainly not an outcome that she would have been like wanted to make very clear to everybody. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think it, I think it probably was a loss for him. Today's episode is sponsored by us. Yes, us, International Intrigue. The Intrigue team is heading up to New York City this month to cover the UN General Assembly and will be publishing a daily newsletter featuring all the biggest stories from inside the building. If you love Intrigue and want to know more about how the world's leaders confront the biggest challenges of our time, climate change, free trade, the war in Ukraine, you'll absolutely love this newsletter. Check out the link in the show notes to sign up. All right, welcome back. So, John, we have been tracking uh, some tensions in the Caucasus between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Before we get to the update, we've you know we've talked about this conflict before in a lot of detail, but but what's the the brief background? Yeah, I, I think you and and Valentina uh, gave the in depth background uh, back in June on the podcast. So um, I will keep this a, a little brief, um, but it is important to give context and define some terms here before we kind of chat more about it. Um, as you said, the conflict here is about uh, is between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, they both have competing claims to this piece of territory called uh, Nagorno Karabakh. Uh, I think it's known as Artsakh. Uh, excuse my pronunciation in in Armenia. Um, most of the people living in this territory, in this in this area, are ethnic Armenians. But the land itself is pretty squarely inside Azerbaijan these days. Um, for a while, starting in 1994, the territory was kind of de facto independent, but retained very very close ties to Armenia. Um, but then in 2020, 
Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a, a brief but bloody war, which I think maybe our listeners might remember. Uh, and that saw Azerbaijan retake all of the territory surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh, um, which allowed it to kind of isolate Karabakh's population from Armenia, which is only you know a couple of kilometers away. Um, and until last December, Russian peacekeepers were actually keeping kind of like a humanitarian corridor open between uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia, despite it being kind of isolated. But Azerbaijan has since closed that down. Right. This is the, the lock-in corridor that maybe people have right. heard of. I mean, is there a chance that they'll consider opening it back up? Well, that's what we've been watching for, right? And on Saturday, we got news that Azerbaijan's government um, struck a deal with separatists uh, to reopen the road amid what is, I think, a pretty serious humanitarian crisis in, in Karabakh. Um, for months, we've been hearing reports that people were you know, unable to get critical medicines and, and food supplies in that area. Um, really, there's no other way to describe it than Azerbaijan had kind of been implementing a siege of the region. Um, so, you know, I think it'd be really encouraging if this deal that we heard news of over the weekend um, is able to hold. Is, is there reason to think it, it won't hold? Well, uh, you know, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but I'm, I'm always a bit skeptical about the long-term likelihood of, of deals uh, for this area to, to sort of stick. Um, you know, history tells us they don't last. I mean, on the same day the agreement was struck, so Saturday, uh, separatists in Karabakh voted to elect a new president, which Azerbaijan called a, quote, serious blow to efforts of normalization in the region. So early signs, you know, aren't great. Um, and at the same time, Armenia has accused Azerbaijan of a troop buildup along their shared border um, uh, and around Karabakh. Though, to be fair, Azerbaijan says Armenia is doing precisely the same thing. So it's very much he says, she says. Um, and to make matters worse, there's also this regional, global element here. Um, for decades, Russia has been um, I'm Armenia's primary economic and security partner. Uh, they've been pretty close. But given the failure to keep this humanitarian corridor open, Armenians seem, you know, well, I think it's reasonable to assume Armenians are probably less convinced that Russia is going to be a reliable partner for them in the future. Um, so so they, they've instead turned to the West and, and they're planning to hold military drills with the US, which, you know, Russia doesn't like and is pretty upset by. Um, so there's a lot going on. And long story short, Ethan, uh, it, this has the, unfortunately has all the ingredients that it could really spin out of control again if either side missteps or miscalculates or miscommunicates or miss anything, really. Um, you know, let's hope it holds, obviously, because as I said, there's a really a, a pretty serious humanitarian situation going on right now. But unfortunately, I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking about this issue again pretty, pretty soon. Yeah, spot on. I mean, when you look at the map of global conflict crisis zones, this is one to keep an eye on. So, John, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ethan. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, I don't ask for much, but if you like this show, it would mean the world if you could take just a second to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really is the best way to help us climb the charts and grow our audience. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.